This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Sarah picked this, and I don't know for what reason, but the Thomistic Institute has a list of professors and topics, and this is one of the topics that I gave. And I think when I formulated it, because I'm working on intellectual autobiography, I, um, uh, I was thinking of Bertrand Russell's book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Right? And I think, I think the question's a lot easier for uh, in the negative than it is, if you're going to answer it in the negative than the positive, because if you're explaining why you're not a Christian, you just simply say why you don't believe or don't find plausible or convinced by or think that certain things that Catholics, that, that Christians believe are false. And that's a relatively straightforward exercise. But if you're kind of in the thick of it, of being a Christian, you can't look at the Christian faith simply as a matter of a set of beliefs sort of held up to you, and then you have to decide whether or not you're going to accept them, like this theory of quantum mechanics, I was about, or not, right? It's a little bit more complicated than that. So if I can advance to the next slide, I actually distinguished four different questions, which I see in that original question. And as a philosopher, I make distinctions, in a certain sense, my professional disease. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, and I wouldn't burden you with all these different questions unless I thought they actually had some kind of interest in, in looking at them separately. So I really think there are four different questions that are bound up in that first question. The first is, what is the explanation for my being a Christian? The second is, why do I believe what Christians believe? That's the one that's closest to what Bertrand Russell was addressing. The third is, by what process did I become a Christian? And the fourth is, why, being a Christian, do I remain a Christian? Right, so I'm, I want to address each of these in turn, and um, maybe I'll speak for 10 minutes on each one. There are lots of things to be said, and then we can have a question and answer. So what is the explanation for my being a Christian? And here I, I want to advert to something that's not myself. I, I, I believe that God exists. I'm not going to argue right now that God exists, but as a Christian, I would say, given that God exists, and we're his creatures, he acts upon the world. And one of the things that he does is he, as it were, fishes us, fishes human beings out of the sea, who are drowning in the sea. And it's his action, it's not our action. He also seems to do it in visible ways with some of us and not with all of us. This is a deep mystery, and Christians have pondered this since the very beginning, but I can't, it would be foolish for me to say that's what has, God has done in my life, he does in every person's life, because I don't know that that's true. There may be intimations and secret things and so on, the nanosecond before you die when these things happen, but as far as I can tell, it doesn't happen in the same way with everyone. We can discuss that mystery in Q&A if you want. And, and what, he, what he did in my case is he saved me. Now, I'm not going to say that I'm a canonized saint because he saved me. That's not the Catholic understanding of salvation. Salvation is actually a public concept. It comes from classical world. 
and it was used, for example, there there were uh, like shrines erected by the Greeks to Zeus Soter, Zeus the Savior, and. And when this word salvation is soteria, you can look it up in a lexicon, when it's used in the classical world, it has a certain meaning and there's certain aspects of it. So a human being, a mere mortal, finds himself in some kind of serious peril, a storm at sea, maybe, from which he believes he cannot rescue himself. And he's right about that, right? And he maybe calls on a, a, a deity, maybe does not. But a deity intervenes and rescues him from this desperate state and translates him to a place of safety, frequently bringing him home. So safe harbor, return to harbor, that's where you set up your shrine to Zeus Sotir. And the mortal at that point pays some kind of homage gratitude, thanksgiving to the deity. And so I would maintain that salvation, right, we think of it in terms maybe in North Texas, I don't know, in terms of the TV preachers or something like that. It's an old concept and it has a kind of objective existence in our civilization. And that's what it is. Right? So Christianity, I understand as, I don't, I'm going to, just risk a digression here, but maybe you've heard of Anselm's argument for the existence of God, where he says that God is the maximally best being, and the maximally best being has to exist, because how could the maximally best being not exist? That's a very simple way of putting it, but it's an argument from, so to speak, the, the extreme, the optimum, right? And I want to say this, that the human condition, I think, is a condition of extreme need of salvation. So it's not like a storm at sea. Uh, where your body is at risk of dying. It's, it's, we are in peril of soul, which is more important than body, and of the greatest peril, because it's peril of separation from God, who's the greatest good, and the separation threatens at least to be eternal. Right? And it's something we can't extricate ourselves from. Right? So, it's the greatest peril. It's the greatest need of salvation, according to this objective concept. And as you know, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the, the whole, at least from the point of view of, of the gospel, this is the whole point of Christianity. It's a savior in this classical sense. Right? And I want to maintain in Christianity, we, we have... This, the salvation we're being saved from is the optimal condition of desperation and evil. The salvation is the best possible form. Because you have an intervention which is not just the deity coming down, condescending to intervene, but the deity himself entering into our plight. And not simply externally rescuing us, but rescuing us by assuming our very nature and not simply translating us to a place where we were before, but actually bringing us to an even better place. And not simply bringing us home, but bringing us to his home, right? My father has many mansions, right? So I think that that's what's working out in Christianity, right? The human race faces the greatest possible peril, the greatest possible salvation, according to this objective concept, takes place. 
And so if I want to say, what is the explanation for my being a Christian? I am one of those who was fished out of the sea, right? And I can't speak for others. I do know that, I'm not going to say no, because that's a very strong claim, but I do believe, I have a great deal of confidence, that that's what happened in my case. So this working out of this mysterious salvation intervened into my life. If I'll speak a little bit about it more. I was an atheist when I was in college. I converted to Christianity at Harvard College as an atheist. There was a sharp intervention in my life. I'm now a Christian. I've been practicing Christianity for a lot of years. I'm not going to tell you because I know there are physicists here who can then figure out how old I am. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's only four of us. <laughs> There's a piece by Joshua Katz in the October edition of First Things. He's in, um, a philologist in the classics department at Princeton. He's just converted recently to Christianity. He, he finds it inevitable to use this term redemption for what happened to him. He's from a Jewish atheist background, too. Um, not too, I'm not Jewish, but um, an atheist at the time. And redemptio is, is buying back. Right. Typically, it's a ransoming of somebody, uh, maybe captured by pirates or something like that. It's very closely related to salvation. So when I read that, I thought to myself, I just had already begun thinking about this talk. Well, that's really interesting, because he wants to use the same language and say that this is really crucial to understand what what's going on. Now, I didn't talk about my first bullet point here, which is Walker Percy. Walker Percy is this tremendous, he's known for being a novelist. He was actually interested originally in, in language and semiology, and he wrote some essays in semiology, which is the theory, the theory of the signification of language, the meaning of language, and they were big flops. I don't know if you know this, he was actually trained as a physician, and he became so ill that um, the effects of the disease basically made him unable to practice medicine. So he actually became interested in semiology. And um, then he wrote essays in semiology. Nobody read his essays. So I have to get this my thoughts about semiology out, so I'm going to write novels. And his, his first novel won the National Book Award. And he was off from there. Uh, he lived in Louisiana, so one, one of the great Southern Catholic novelists, along with Flannery O'Connor. And anyway, he... Um, uh, I'm not sure I can unqualifiedly recommend any of his novels because they'll have some slightly like dicey passages in them. But that's realistic, so I wouldn't necessarily hand any of these to my children. But um, he also then, in later in his life, returned to semiology and wrote essays, which are in, and, and they're collected together in a, a collection called "Message in a Bottle." And in the essay uh, "Message in a Bottle." He talks about a man who's stranded on a desert island. And there are two types of things he could learn. One is information. And information is something like scientific truth. Like he could know the distance of the sun from the earth and the mass of an electron and the chemical composition of sugars, things like that. But he's actually not interested in information because he's stranded on a desert island. What he wants is news. And news is something which speaks to his getting off the desert island. And um, Winston Churchill actually says, um, I'll, I'll, I'll send something 
to you or send it to Sarah, a paper I wrote on this uh, concept of salvation, I quote Winston Churchill too. Um, and Churchill makes a similar distinction connection when he thinks the absence of conflict between Christianity and science, because Christianity is speaking to news and science is speaking to information. Right. So um, and that's a valuable distinction to make or something like that. Uh, when I was an undergraduate and recently converting to Christianity, I spoke of it in terms of love versus truth or love versus knowledge. Right. So um, Christianity speaks to that. And you know, maybe being a very accomplished philologist at Princeton University makes it difficult to admit for most people. I think I think Joshua Katz would agree from what he says in his article that you actually need to be saved in some very deep sense. Okay, so that's the first reason for why I was a Christian. It's not my action at all. It's um, something that God worked in my life. And that's what we're told Christianity is about in the very name of Jesus. Okay, so I would say that that's the proper explanation for why I'm a Christian. Now, the next question is why I believe what Christians believe. And I don't know how you think about this, but there are two ways you can think about it and two ways it may appear to you. One is, and I know this appeared to me in this way for a while when I was a Protestant Christian, which was for just a couple of years. It seemed like an eternity back then, but it was a couple of years. I was an evangelical Christian and I memorized Bible verses with navigators and went into small group Bible studies. And it was one of the best two years of my life. Um, memorized the Serenos and all kinds of scripture that, you know, including you know, Romans 12, 2, which I put now my email signature following Sarah. She has Galatians, what, 2.23? Is that hers? So, um, but um, I know when I was in that period, it looked like there was tremendous disagreement among Christians, whereas to people outside of Christianity, it may look like Christianity is very uniform in what they believe. It's certainly kind of cancel culture, might think of Christianity as, as a single voice. Christianity has a lot of heterogeneity in it. It's very diverse. But um, that's actually not what Christianity is supposed to be like. Or there's supposed to be certain matters which are defined in faith and morals and are such that Christians are bound to believe them. They're de fide. De fide. This is um, what I came to see when I became a Catholic. That will be the discussion of tomorrow's seminar, if you can make the seminar tomorrow morning. Why, why I'm a Catholic or why I became Catholic. And um, you can't really have that kind of coincidence of belief without authority. It has to be a matter not of each person kind of putting all the facts in front of himself and putting all the relevant sources and making up his mind, because that's a formula for disagreement. In fact, we want that sort of disagreement in the classroom, right? in science, in seminar discussions. Consensus is probably the last thing that you want if you're a scientist, right? But Christianity wants unity and harmony. That's part of the communio, the communion, which is Christian. You, you believe the same things. 
And you go on from there, obviously you believe the same things in matters of faith and morals, not in physics or in philosophy or any other thing, or even political positions. It's supposed to be all relatively free compared with the basis of agreement, right? And you can't really get that without authority, right? So this is what we're seeing, you know, as discussing the cop before the talk of COVID state of mind. All the appeals to settled science and follow the science are all appeals to authority, not people who really know anything about the science, I think. Um, and But it does generate uniformity of belief. That's my point. Right? Now, I want to say 99.9% .9 of knowledge is something that we, is based on authority. Like the boiling point of water is 2012 degrees Fahrenheit at a certain atmospheric pressure. Like maybe you tested that once in your science lab, but that wouldn't be sufficient for establishing the law, right? In fact, as far as I can tell, given my instruments, like the tea kettle I'm using, it boils at 210 degrees Fahrenheit. So, and, and that's why people say we, like we believe this or we believe that, because they don't really know. I mean, they didn't do it, the experiments themselves. They did not confirm it through looking at molecular structure, studying laws of thermodynamics. It's just relying on someone else who was an authority. So I, the point is that if you go through all of the things that you believe to be true, you will find very, very few of them that you actually took steps to confirm yourself. You're relying on someone else. And that's the way it should be. Man is a social animal. His sociability is shown in the way he cooperates with other human beings in order to acquire shared knowledge. There's, there's hardly anything that's more of a social enterprise, I mean, the economy certainly is, than what you see at a university, like the University of North Texas. Right? So, given that religion is some, something like belief and something like knowledge, and given that truth is important to religion, you would say antecedently, this is a big word for John Henry Newman, like if you're kind of looking at a subject at the beginning and you want to think what you expect to find inside the subject that you're going to look at, antecedently you would expect to find that in the domain of religion there would be a substantial role played by authority because there isn't everything else that we regard as, an, as a matter of truth and quasi-knowledge. Right? So then you have to take something on authority to be a Christian. Right. Well, what is it to take something on authority? You believe what someone says who is trustworthy, who has goodwill for you, so that they want to lead you to truth, they want to share truth with you, they're disposed to share truth with you. They um, are reporting on some domain that you do not see, so you have to take their word for it. Like you can shout to someone in the other room, you know, did I leave my cup on the table in the other room? And they'll say, no, it's not here. Or yes, I see your cup on the table, right? That's a domain you don't have access to, but this person can see it directly. So that person is, so to speak, an authority in the matter, but you're not an authority. So. Religion has to have that character. It has to have this kind of character of taking something on trust, on authority, where those conditions are um, met. Right. Now, 
tomorrow morning we can discuss, well, what are those authorities? Right? And basically, a Protestant says there's just one authority, it's Holy Scripture, and a Catholic says there are two authorities, Scripture and Apostolic Tradition. Right? I don't want to get into that question this evening, but I do want to discuss what is it that you need to believe in order to think that there can be religious authorities. Right? This used to be discussed under heading of preambula fidei, which is a Latin word which means the the pre precursors of faith. It it was held, it has been held, and maybe this is even defined in the Catholic faith, that in order to have faith, you must have reasonable confidence in something not through faith, prior to faith. Because faith is taking something on authority. And taking something on authority involves those elements that I just enumerated. Right. So I think that one's grasp here can be fairly indistinct, but you have to have some sense that there is a being or person, God, who is has goodwill towards you, knows these things, and is disposed to reveal them to you through some kind of instrumentality, which you're supposed to accept. And then furthermore, you have to think that there is a domain where you don't have that much authority, or, or any at all, but God would have authority. Now again, these can be very distinct. I'm confident they were in my case. And a, a kind of process of bootstrapping can take place where you get clearer about God's existence and you get clearer about right, the possibility of faith given that God exists or something might take to be real. Like you could go to the New Testament and read the New Testament and say, now I more firmly believe that God exists because, well, who is it that Jesus was talking to, right? If not, if God didn't exist, right? It's kind of, God's existence leads you to take the New Testament seriously, taking it more seriously leads you to take God's existence more seriously. So I think there can be a bootstrapping process that takes place. So I want to say that I accepted, uh, when I became a Christian, the trustworthiness of the New Testament. And I don't know if later in another slide will enable me to say, I mean, at one point I read F.F. Bruce, are the New Testament documents, are they reliable? I became convinced that they were reliable, that at least the history between us and the first writing of the Gospels gave us new reason to think that they were vitiated. Um, but there, there had to be, and there has to be, for anyone to become a Christian, some kind of at least indistinct sense that some kind of God exists and that something like my soul exists, which is there to be saved so that I can accept truth revealed by God relevant to this issue of saving my soul. Right. Now, for me, even when I was an atheist, I think I wasn't wholly an atheist. And I, and David Hume, even in one of his essays, says, you know, although people are always going around trying to refute the atheists, at the same time they wonder whether anyone can really be an atheist. And by the way, that question has actually arisen by historians of philosophy about David Hume himself, right? Was he an atheist or was he not an atheist? Because he writes this tremendously destructive dialogues concerning natural religion, and at the end he seems to profess some kind of theistic belief, right? So, I mean, Hume didn't even escape this question. But I really don't, I don't think even in my atheistic period that I ever 
lost a sense that there had to be a first and a last, a first cause and a last cause. Right, the last cause was probably clearer to me. What is the purpose of human striving? This leads to that, that leads to another thing, that other thing leads to something else. Unless it terminates in something which is itself desirable and not sought for anything else. You'll find this argument in Book 1, Chapter 2 of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. It's in Plato's Lysis. It's a very old argument. It's basically the fifth way of Aquinas. Right? It was very vague and intuitive for me, but there has to be a last good of striving. If there's not, then as Aristotle himself says, and everything is vain, and I was, of course, always tempted to that view, and I remember I even made a game in high school where it was, I was very, and it was an existentialist phase, and you went through this game of life, and you got to the center, and if you won, you opened it up, and it was a picture of a five-cent cigar. That's what you got from the game of life. It was deeply nihilistic. <laughs> now, of course, any, you know, any kind of 17-year-old worth of salt is going to go through a deeply nihilistic existentialist phase, right? But, and, and my point is that's always possible, and it's even possible as a posture for a very believing Christian. There can be dark nights of the soul where reality looks like that, even though in faith you believe it's not. But insofar as you're not actually so despairing that you're essentially going to commit suicide, right? to that extent, at least practically, you're committed to the existence of that last cause. And then the first cause, I was speaking with Joe, Joe about physics. I studied physics in college, and I studied with Lee Smolin. Do you know Lee Smolin, the Perimeter Institute? He was my teacher in college. And um, one of the things that struck me in studying cosmology especially was how physicists were disposed to think of the universe as a whole as an object which we're outside of and thinking about it. It really goes back to like the pre-Socratics where they thought that the universe is like a log floating on, in, on, on water in a bucket, right? Or, you know, an Anaximander made a map of the world, right? And the first time anyone thought you can actually encompass the world and represent it as a single entity. In fact, the word cosmos, which is the source of cosmology, means ordered unity. That's what it means. So I think this is a tremendous conceptual advance of the ancient Greeks, that they thought that there was a single thing to study there, and they tried to characterize the whole. I mean, I think that's really very bold already. Right. So I began to think of modern science as doing the same thing. But if you do, then it's inevitable that the question would arise sharply, which could arise anyway on metaphysical grounds. Why is there something rather than nothing? Right? If you're operating the world of, world of absolute space and time, Newtonian space and time, like Samuel Clark, who was a student of Newton, a disciple of Newton, then you put it this way. Something exists now. Nothing can come from nothing. Therefore, something has always existed. Which... I. It's, it doesn't actually work that way because time and space are not absolute, but it's a fairly remarkable argument that you can draw a conclusion about all of infinite past just from the fact that something exists now and from the confidence that nothing exists without having had been caused. Right. So it's that kind of argument, the third way of St. Thomas Aquinas, a first cause, a first cause, last cause, those two types of argument always had intuitive appeal. So I was prepared to think that it made sense 
that a God exists. And by the way, if you ever think about the question, this is a bit of a digression, of atheism or Christianity, when you're engaging your somebody, ask the question, do you think that it would be a good thing if God existed or not? There's a philosopher, Thomas Nagel, who just wrote on this question. He said that if he ever found, woke up and found himself reciting believingly the Nicene Creed, he'd think he had gone insane. He'd, and then he says somewhere else, I don't, I don't want God to exist. Right? It'd be too much of an infringement on my autonomy. I think that's basically his view, right? And Samuel Clark, actually, at the beginning of his lectures on the being and attributes of God, says, says I think, very perceptively, a lot of people don't pose this question because it's kind of a necessary condition of investigating in good faith that you would welcome the conclusion if, in fact, God actually did exist. Okay, so what about the soul? Well, here I'm going to switch from the more philosophical to the more personal, which is that probably this is true for most of us. I had experiences in my childhood and young adulthood of the supernatural, right? of the occult, of evil forces right? connected with specters, Ouija boards, um, and other things. Right? And don't get involved in Ouija boards, please. Right? It is like the gateway to the demonic. Right? And it, convinced me that there was something there, and I wouldn't think about most of the time, and you probably haven't thought about it also, but probably in my stating it, you said, oh yeah, that's actually right. I do have, you know, this, these five, six, seven experiences that are pretty hard to explain and indicate there's something going on that's deeper than just kind of ordinary plain reality where we pay for Parkmobile and, you know, I'm going to go out to a nice dinner and so on. There's something spooky, right, that's in the background. You know, maybe over dinner or something, I can share some of my personal experiences. But I, it's kind of, there is always lurking in the background of my life the sense that there's a kind of domain here, which you know, people might call spiritual, which, is, which I'm somehow caught up with. And in my attempts to ignore it, it still exists nonetheless, right? And it's, it's deeply important. It's, it's important. It has something to do with the fact that why I can't control my actions. I'm not happy with the way I'm living. Again, these questions of salvation. So I think that's, you know, philosophers have arguments for why the soul is immaterial. I think the existence of knowledge is itself probably testi testimony to the immateriality of the soul. Um, because things that are inanimate can't be in the proper relationship of knowing to things that are um, of knowing. Um, so I, but I won't go into those kinds of arguments. They also, I also entertain them. But those are kind of the, the background for believing for me. Newman says that conscience also ends up being important for this step of wanting to believe. Because if you have any kind of earnestness at all, you, your conscience is telling you that certain things are wrong. And you've done things that are gravely wrong. Actually, Katz discusses this in his piece, and he's made it public. So... Why can't I make it public? He, had, he has a professor, he had a relationship with a student, he must have been an undergraduate. And it was all uh, licit, it was in accordance with Princeton's rules at the time. Um, but later, the kind of the Me Too, Too movement came back and, and kind of bit him in the butt, you might say. Um, 
and Princeton suspended him without pay for a year in punishment of something that wasn't even illegal when he did it because it was guarded as so deeply ethical, whatever, 10 years after it took place. Now, that's strange, and I don't really understand that from the point of view of Princeton. But what is interesting from his um, article, which he styles a confession, is the fact that he was eaten up inside about this since it, since it took place. He could not put it out of his mind. He was deep aware that he had done something deeply wrong. And, and believe that he couldn't deal with it. He, could, he had to pay for it somehow. It need to be taken away from him. Right. So this is also related to the notion of the soul, right? the conscience, the voice of conscience. All right, so then the third, by what process did I become a Christian? I call this vocation because when you're going through it, it looks like you're being so upstanding and diligent and following all of these things now. But in retrospect, you realize you are actually being sought rather than seeking anything. So I mentioned that I was an atheist. I converted. I became a Christian. What started everything moving, what made me sober and thinking I needed to investigate what the purpose of my life was, was a near-death experience. I almost drowned. I was, um, I took a boat with a friend to a beach that was not reachable by road. Uh, we went out swimming. There was a riptide. Drew me way out to sea. My friend barely got in. I, I was exhausted. I panicked. I couldn't find my way in. I thought I was going to drown. He was a, he, he was a, a Christian and I wasn't, I was an atheist. He was on the beach praying, saying, Lord save Michael because if he drowns he's going to go to hell and a couple of men came walking along the beach uh, you know very very fit wearing uh, speedo bathing suits and one of them jumped in swam out to me and hauled me back and left me on the shore my friend's father had fished in those waters that area for 20 years said he never saw anyone on the beach the men who appeared came from where there's an inlet, there's not even far, not even a road. It's actually in that direction. There's just water after about a quarter of a mile. So it was all very strange. The timing was perfect, and so on. Um, seems miraculous. Um, anyway, that sobered me up. I realized that if I had died at that point, uh, my life to that point would have been meaningless. So I had to do something with my life. I had to figure out what the purpose of my life was. And at that time, I met a woman I eventually married, and um, not the woman I'm married to now. Uh, my first wife died of cancer. She was very young. And she was on a similar quest. She um, encountered the Puritans in her study of very early American literature and was impressed by their seriousness of purpose and contrasted them with her own very hedonistic and frivolous life and decided that she wanted to live more like them than like herself. How could she do that? So we were both, you, you could say, given what I had just said, part two, second question, in looking for some kind of revelation about what we're supposed to do, what the meaning of our life is. And we turned to Christianity. And at the time, people asked us, well, why are you looking at Christianity? There are many world religions. There's Buddhism, there's Hinduism, there's Taoism, Islam, Judaism. Why are you looking at Christianity? It never really seemed like a serious question to us. Um, 
eventually we, we, we read C.S. Lewis and Lewis says something that Christianity and Hinduism are the only two religions you need to take seriously because they both combine the very divine and the very earthy. You can at least eliminate all the others and, and just start with those two. But, so this is one of the things, one of those things that in retrospect I would say that um, there were four reasons we looked at Christianity didn't even get a thought to anything else. One was its antiquity. If you, if you think of Christianity as an offshoot or continuation of Judaism, it goes back 5,000 years. And we were convinced that whatever kind of answer we were looking for, it's something that had to have been there for a while, had to be ancient. The other was we thought its trustworthiness in the sense that it wasn't like you know, some fly-by-night thing like Jehovah's Witnesses that just kind of appeared out of nowhere. And, you know, what, what was it about? And, I mean, if you have Michelangelo and Raphael and Dante and so on being Christians, then there's something reliable about it. It doesn't fry your mind and turn you into a lunatic, right? <laughs> and then it's fecundity, right? So we both knew enough about history and art and literature and so on to see that it was kind of a recurrent spring of creativity. In, and then f kind of wrapping it all up, civilization. It's just There's this great BBC series on, on uh, goes way back, like 30 years, called Civilization. You ever heard of this? Kenneth, what's his name? Is the, you know the name of the narrator? He was like a curator of one of the museums in Kenneth London. Clark. Kenneth Clark, yeah. He says, I'm not sure what civilization is. He's standing in front of Notre Dame Cathedral and says, but I'm pretty sure that's civilization. <laughs> <laughs> and if various times during this uh, 12 episode um, documentary, he'll say that the church has been this, the, the arc of, of civilization. It's been the, the seedbed of civilization. It's been the savior of civilization, the mother of civilization. He's, he's kind of a distant... He's maybe some kind of intellectual Protestant. I don't really know when he's doing this series. On his deathbed, he can be converted to Catholicism, actually. Mm. Um, but this is good, right? We, we, they protest against Western civilization and how it has to go at Stanford and all that. But um, you know, maybe you know, when you're raising children and trying to teach them something, you say, well... You know, it really helps that there's the Sistine Chapel ceiling, for example, that that exists. And this beautiful building exists. And I can actually give you this sonnet of Shakespeare to memorize. Right? All of these tremendous treasures where there's this kind of marriage of intelligence and subtlety and, and faith. Right? It's, it's, it's an inestimable gift. And we saw Christianity as being behind that. And correctly so, it seems to me. So um, that's where we looked. And then, okay, so I'm telling you a process, right? And then we said to ourselves, well, how do you verify? It's like a song. We were somebody studied a lot of science. How do you verify the truth of something that involves invisible realities? can't really test them in a laboratory by experiment. You know, we're very much in, taken with the Popperian, Karl Popper's idea that true theory has to be falsifiable. How can you falsify Christianity? How could you prove it to be false if it is false? Um, you know, even Socrates did this with philosophy. Right? He was told by the oracle, try to refute the idea that you are 
venue no one is wiser, right? And he spent his whole life trying to refute it in order to prove it, so to speak, right? So that's what we did. So we said, okay, well, Christianity, we want to test Christianity. Let's start embodying or incorporating into our lives elements of Christianity. We'll see how that works out. We'll test it by living it. So we started reading the Bible. Um, I should say that was one of our confirming experiences of the demonic, because we found that whenever we were going to read the Bible, um, Satan seemed to have some other suggestion of how we should be using our time. And then eventually said, wait a second, you see what's going on here? Like, this is kind of creepy. Someone, some power is trying to stop us from reading the Bible. And that was probably our first step towards Christian chastity right then. Right? I think the devil showed his hand. He made a huge mistake there in doing that. And then we read the Bible. We read in the Bible about prayer, so we started praying a little bit. And then we realized if you're Christian, you have to go to a church. And we just shop for a church in Harvard Square, and that's a pretty bad idea. Man. No, <laughs> we ended up with a really bad church. I think God liked the, the initiative, though. Um, then some kind of discipleship that came after we became Christian, or as we were converting. And catechesis, you need to actually kind of learn these things. And every step seemed supporting. It seemed to make sense. It seemed to make other things go right. It seemed to help us deal with, with weaknesses and, and addictions of various sorts that, that, that were depressed, making us depressed. So then at some point you make a decision, there's a commitment, a public commitment. Maybe you're baptized publicly or something. You're an evangelical Protestant and you join a fellowship and that's striking. Like if you're at Harvard College and you show up for the first time at the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, that is saying something. You've joined that side, you've gone over to the other side. Bullet point, eerie occurrences, a power does not want this. You can tell that some power is out to stop this. Okay, so as I said, it, it seemed like we were really cool at, at Harvard being the, the sole searchers for Christian truth in the end. Um, it's something that has to be described as something that is, we're responding to a call, we're actually not great investigators and detectives. Okay, and then the final point, and I'm afraid I may be going on too long. I'll try to wrap this up quickly because I want time for, for Q&A. So being a Christian, why do I remain a Christian? Christianity is constantly under attack. Right? You're ridiculed, considered foolish, anti-science, anti-vax, anti-so-and-so, right? You're phobic of all kinds of things. You have to have a pretty good reason for staying a Christian. Now, I could go back and review everything that I read and studied and thought and all the arguments and so on. I'd probably accept still nine out of ten of the ones that I accepted back then. But I want to say that as someone who's lived as a Christian now for several decades, these are the two things that I'd point to as what keeps me confirmed in the faith. And of course, everybody has dark periods and dark nights of the soul and so on. So I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know, triumphalistically, Rah rah Christianity. Um, I want to say there's this whole domain of what I call the natural goods of human life, which as a parent I'm deeply concerned about. And I want my children to accept these as good, to grow in them, to embrace them, and for their lives to be, so to speak, fabricated out of these goods, right? And um, 
Right, there's a theory that they're available to man in the natural use of his capabilities. Right? But in reality, in, form, in fallen man, you don't see these natural goods and you don't see them taken care of and esteemed as they should, except for Christians. It's kind of a strange paradox, but you know, kind of leaping ahead to the Catholic point of view, um, in Gaudium Space, a document of the Second Vatican Council, the Council teaches that it's only in the mystery of man, that the, in the mystery of Christ, that the mystery of man is made manifest. Right? Or if you lose sight of the Creator, you lose sight of the creature. Right? We see that happening for all around us in our society, right? So what are they? Well, male, female. This is tremendous good. That there's a way of being human which is female, and there's a way of being human which is male and masculine. And I believe a good education accentuates, all good education accentuates talents and natural gifts. It doesn't try to suppress them. So a truly good educator tries to identify what, the, what those are without any kind of invidious stereotyping and recognizing also the diversity of the manifestation of those gifts and tries to bring them out as much as possible. When that's done, by the way, um, talk about Tinder, male and female are basically, you know, very marriageable. So um, um, a boy raised in a certain way and a girl raised in a certain way, if they meet and they're 17 years old or 18 years old and they fall in love, they'll probably want to get married right away. And that's basically how things ought to go, I believe. Marriage shouldn't be regarded as something that you might get to if everything else in place is in place. It should be regarded as a basic fundamental of life on which other things are built. So the family, built on marriage, so understood. Um, education of the whole person in this goodness which is civilization. You know, what can I talk about? Romeo and Juliet. All right, so <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, the play of Shakespeare, I think I read it when I was in high school. And I hated it. <laughs> and I think I watched it again um, in that Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio form. And that's <laughs> horrific. <laughs> that's horrific, and I hated that too. Actually, I liked it because it was kind of edgy. But I should have hated it. And recently when I looked at it, I hated it. Couldn't go past the first 10 minutes of it. But, okay, so I'm, I have to homeschool this year, and we can talk about homeschooling, but I have now at home, I'm homeschooling a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And one of the things that helps me homeschool is to take advantage of things like Kenneth Baker's Civilization. And, you know, okay, now, you've done your math, you've done your reading, Go watch Kenneth Baker's Civilization while well, I try to get some work done over here, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's like me and my married band, right? Um, because that's another thing. We could talk about parroting. Like, once kids get to my 13-year-old is just on the edge, but he's deeply a key. I mean, I'm his hero. There's no, I've never had a child like this for whom I, I, he, I think he identifies himself with me. Like, he doesn't even draw a distinction between himself and me. That's how much he likes. <laughs> Although he's angry with me half of the time. I think that's because he doesn't draw that distinction. <laughs> so he's still part of my merry band. He hasn't broken off in his own way. 
uh, you know, where it, it comes to a point where if you suggest something, then the natural thing is to say, I don't want to do that. But he's still in the stage where he wants to do it, right? So I say, okay, let's watch Roman and Julia. It's part of our homeschooling. I don't know why. Why Roman and Julia? Oh, because West Side Story is coming out. So it's all done, right? You all try to engineer things in your homeschooling. It's going to be a new Spielberg West Side Story. That's based, I want them to be in a position to appreciate that. We're going to watch the old West Side Story. We're going to watch Prokofiev's ballet. We're going to read Shakespeare. So this is fantastic BBC room in Juliet from 1984-1994. And it's one of these productions that does what we always want Shakespeare to do, where they're reading the Shakespeare lines, they don't edit it, it's not abridged, but it seems like they're speaking to you and me today. It's that good. Right. Do you know this one from BBC? If you don't know it, go get it and watch it. Right. And I'm there and I'm watching it with my eight-year-old and my four-year-old and my 13-year-old boy, right, and 10-year-old boy. And they're all loving it. Like They want to, can we watch the next, can we, you know, we watch one act at night. It's too much to watch at all. Can we just watch another act? And we couldn't, there was a long gap went by for various reasons. We couldn't watch every night. Can we watch the next act? Can we watch? They were completely entranced by this. Okay. And it's not because my kids are geniuses, right? it's just that they've been educated well. It should be the case that to a 13-year-old, and I was not educated well, you watch Romeo and Juliet, and it helps to have your father sitting there and watching something, because fathers have tremendous influence. Just what they do, it, it validates, it makes it seem important, whatever a father is doing. Right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm kind of bragging about this, but... This is, this is, but at the point is, this is a success. This is education. There are these great goods that we should, and, or, you know, we started listening to jazz, and I, I put on Dave Brubeck, Take Five, right? Um, you know, just sit down, and you want to listen to Dave Brubeck. You're going to pay attention to that. Oh, here's another, you know, important jazz classic. You should know, you should know Chick Corea, Spain, right? So put that on, right? And um, Sarah's back there. Can you sing that for us? Spain? Okay. All right, so <laughs> you're the jazz, jazz, uh, you're jazz singer right there. You're in a great school for jazz. All yeah, right. Okay, so um, that's what I mean by the natural goods, right? That's preserved in a household, of course, a Christian household. That's why it's there. Um, friendships, piety, and worship, right? So I've seen Christianity lived, and I see how it is like a pastor that takes in these. You know, these human goods and tries to, and recognizes them, cares for them, esteems them. Unlike our society, which is trashing all of them, right? Obviously. So, right to me, Gesundheit. To me, becoming and they know what Gesundheit means in German too. So, and and they know why people said "God bless you" when you sneezed, right? So they find very humorous, right? So and. So, um, you know, when I became Catholic, and I'm not going to discuss this tomorrow, but I could, you know, somebody was saying, well, Catholos, it means it, it, taking in the whole, right? So it's like there's this famous maxim of the, of the Roman playwright Terence, homo sum et nihu amani alianima me puto, I am human and nothing human I count as, uh, as distant from me, as not my concern, right? And it's that outlook which Catholicism implies. And I write, by the way, I write for um, a daily newspaper, so to speak, called The Catholic Thing. Bob Royal is the editor of that. 
And in calling it the Catholic thing, this is what he wanted to call to mind. Right? And he gets upset, I think rightly so, with Catholic Internet, which is, you know, I'm against you know, the vaccines and the latest thing that Pope Francis said and, you know, this bishop. And, you know, and those are all serious problems, some of them. But, you know, just getting angry at things that people do wrong or maybe don't do wrong because you misunderstand them. It's not Catholicism. This reduction of focus to these three or four things. Even abortion, as terrible as it is, and it is horrible, and it is murder and so on, it can't be, and Pope Francis is correct about this, it can't be defining for a Catholic. We're, we're not, def and even saying pro-life isn't defining for a Catholic. If you do, and it becomes a seamless garment, there's a mistake in that too. It's rather that Catholicism is a big picture about everything that's good for human beings, right? And I see that, I've seen that, and that's tremendously confirming of the truth for me. And then um, it provides a space for these things to flourish. And then it allows one to see better the truth. And over time, I want to say falsehood rests upon human society like a blanket smothering it. Um, and there are layers upon layers, and they never... They never seem to get ever fully thrown off. They just stay there. Maybe they get thread there or something like that. But somebody once told me he's he's trying to diet, and he said, um, "How many how many pounds do you think the typical American puts on between Thanksgiving and and and, and New Year's?" And I said, "I don't know, 15. And he said, "No, it's two. The problem is they never lose those two pounds. <laughs> so it becomes like rings on a tree. That's what he said. He, his dietician had told him this, right? So, but that idea of rings on a tree always kind of stuck with me. And I'm thinking of falsehood in our society. Like I think of the Protestant Reformation. When I was a graduate student becoming Catholic, it was deeply, almost fanatical about the Catholic versus Protestant difference. I saw Kantianism as a demythologized, a secularized Protestantism, which of course it is, right? And I would look at my professors like John Rawls and say, you are an exponent of a secularized Protestantism, and you don't recognize that. You think that you are speaking a position of pure reason, and you could be in a Thomist philosophy department doing something similar, and at least you'd know you're a Thomist in that case. You don't even know this. Right, um, England is still dealing with all kinds of distortions and fanaticisms and twistedness resulting from the bizarre change of the headship of the English church at the time of Henry VIII. Right? It's still there. It was never thrown off, even though Catholics have grown more Catholics by far now in Britain than there are members of the Church of England. Right? Um, I put Keynesian there because I've been reading a lot of Keynes recently. Um, you know, I, Richard Nixon said in the 70s, we're all Keynesians now, but he had no idea what Keynes said in his general theory, which I think has been disproved by economics, but it doesn't keep anyone from being Keynesian. <laughs> Abortion's a great example. Abortion is destroying our society. Right? So many of the evils that we see today are just consequences of our embrace of abortion and institutions being vitiated by falsehood about abortion. And yet, no one discusses it as a cause of any of the things that we're seeing today that are crazy, but it's there. And I don't know what we'll ever get rid of it. 
okay, you know, we talk about systemic racism and the, you know, the terrible inheritance of first slavery, then, then segregation. And it, that's real. It still exists. We're trying to throw that off. But there are 10 other things that are like that in our society. And this, oh, here's one, the silence of the Pope during the Holocaust. You know, I don't know if you believe that the Pope was silent during the Holocaust, but that's completely false. The Pope was not silent during the Holocaust. Oh, and by the way, the people who say this have no understanding about how things work in a totalitarian regime. Like if you are going to speak out against Hitler, he will go out and murder like a hundred of your parishioners, right? So you have to be a little bit cannier than that than just kind of making public statements when you're dealing with someone like Hitler. So anyway, that's completely false. Nonetheless, it's, and it's been debunked and there are all kinds of great books that have been written on it. I could recommend one by David Dalen, who's Jewish and a friend of mine, American Jewish historian. But it's never been rejected. I don't think they ever do get rejected. Right? So I want to say that what the Catholic faith provides if you study it shrewdly and intelligently and study the right reliable sources, is a viewpoint from which you can free yourself from a lot of these falsehoods. Now, I don't know which ones I've accepted and I still haven't thrown off, but and it takes a while to see them and to toss them out. But I think that's invaluable because these are falsehoods that concern the deepest and most important things in, in human life. All right, so that wraps it up, and I'll take the questions. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> yes, it sure it will. Okay, and that's all for my talk. I'm